have a, a potentially oppressive question, um, <laughs> which is I'm just wondering because all different folks here know different uh, amounts about your work, I think. But I'm wondering if you just talk for a couple of minutes to situate this work from Hiroshima in your larger body of ongoing works about bells in particular and your ideas of the ways in which bells media or mark the passage of time, almost transculturally and transhistorically, um, yeah. because it's a long ongoing project. I've spent 10 years walking around um, six northern, northern and southern European countries recording bells with European colleagues. Uh, the first time I, uh, this occurred to me as something that was significant was in northern Greece, uh, about 10 kilometers from the Bulgarian border. I was with a friend, a guy named Charlie Kyle, and we were uh, recording Romani instrumentalists on the Greek-Bulgarian border. Uh, I was commissioned to make a CD to go in a book called Bright Balkan Morning, uh, photographs by Dick Blau and texts by Angeliki and Charlie. Kyle uh, about uh, the experience of Romani music in in uh, in, in northern Greece, and um, uh, I all of a sudden heard all of these sounds, these bell sounds, uh, and they were goats or sheep. I didn't know which. I couldn't see them, and uh, the light bulb just kind of went off. Uh, I mean, I had been doing all this work with birds in the rainforest and people in New Guinea for 25 years. And uh, the light bulb was, you know, do bells stand to 10 centuries of European history as birds stand to thousands more in the history of the rainforest? That is, uh, as, um, I mean, these bells, you know, these animals are walked through the commons. So what, I mean, the, animal, the bells are a sonified map of the history of the private and common land. Uh, the relation, you know, the kind of relations that shepherds have to their animals and to the belling of their animals, um, which I've now studied a great deal, both in Greece and in Italy, um, is a, a, a profound kind of story about times, uh, time and um, companion species in uh, Donna Haraway's term. Uh, and, and it has remarkable parallels to the story of humans and birds in the rainforest in New Guinea. Uh, so I, um, and then I went from working with animal bells and what they had to do with space and time in European acoustomologies uh, to church bells and uh, began uh, trying to do a more acoustomological respin of uh, Alain Corbin's uh, book, um, uh, Le Cloche de la Terre, the, the, this book on the history of, uh, of, of, of village bells in, uh, in France and the contestation over who owns time, the church or the state, and, and what the ringing of time, what the ringing of bells has been about in the history of France. Um, and uh, so I began, you know, working more in France um, on, on that one and working through uh, church bells. And then I got into the business of carnival bells. Because carnival bells, I mean, you know, Bakhtin's got to be in the story somewhere. Carnival bells disrupt the hell out of time. I mean, they are the device which, which take time and space and turn it upside down and inside out. And you know, you get three days of ringing in places like Skyros and Greece and, um, and, and all over Italy and um, Sardinia. And um, um, this, uh, the kind of association of the bell with the fool uh, and with the um, ability to disrupt 
time. So this became a kind of, you know, uh, Foucault, Bakhtin, um, you know, uh, uh, coffee conversation, you know. I mean, with bells uh, controlling and dominating time and governing space and organizing, um, uh, while at the same time uh, all these amazing possibilities there, uh, stories about disruption, playfulness, and so forth. So bells uh, and the sound of bells became a way to sort of think about histories of space and time in pastoral European um, contexts, parallel to uh, what birds and uh, cicadas and waterfalls and things like that uh, signify to humans in uh, like a rainforest in New Guinea. Um, and, uh, and then so I started branching out from Europe and uh, began working in Japan and began working in West Africa, in Ghana. So this is part of the projects that have been done in Japan, which come out of this larger project uh, called The Time of Bells, which has been published uh, as five CDs and DVDs, uh, or seven, actually, at this point, and, uh, uh, and which, I haven't, which I haven't written about yet. But uh, I just want to publish the primary media and kind of publish my thoughts about this stuff first in sound. Uh, and then I'll, I'll, I'll write something. Yeah, Michael. I'm very partial to this notion that there's some deep relationship between this, the, the, the transient sound of a bell and that long durée that you were talking about. But I also wonder about the relationship between the uh, local understanding of that longer, I, I don't even want to call it the long durée. There's yeah. a, a because, for example, to take the Greek case, there's a cosmological sense uh, of the bells and their relationship to notions of the church history, which is not the whole history of bell use there. Sure. Um, and um, yeah. uh, the, uh, um, also the, the understanding that time is more uh, cyclical, not in the old-fashioned cyclical versus linear time, but strictly in the way that it's formulated in the Orthodox Church. So I'm wondering how you, you get at the tension between our understanding, as we listen to something of that sort, um, uh, expressing our very uh, historiographic understanding of the long delay, if you will, um, and these other understandings that for the actors themselves, for example, the shepherds, are much more present and, and very yeah. real because they actually talk about these things. Yeah. One of the most stunning experiences that I had in Crete, Michael, was going to the home of a shepherd um, and seeing his grandchildren sitting on the floor playing with all these sheep bells. And this was a man for whom bells were, you know, amounted to the great wealth of the history of his flocks and his relations to them and his knowledge of them. But, uh, you know, when animals died, um, in certain cases, the bells were literally retired. They were retired to the basement, and those bells that were sitting on the floor that his grandkids were playing with were, you know, it was like retiring the number of a sports star's shirt. I mean, and, and so that um, was a kind of moment of recognition about this, the, um, the history of the relations with animals both short and long, the history of the relationship of flocks and wealth, short and long, the history of the presence of those sounds, and then the kind of stories which you've told and you know, you know <laughs> better than any of us about you know, taking the bells off of the animals and 
and then you know in the spring when you put them back on, they they, they really go wild. They they just want to charge out and go crazy. And how this is all storied becomes part of stories of of masculinity and robustness and what it means to break out into the world and and, and all this kind of stuff. So I think there are multiple kinds of time, space, relations, feelings, um, understandings there. And the world of shepherds um, and the world of carnival revelers and the worlds of both the orthodox and non-orthodox presence of bells um, um, and, uh, and uh, the relationship of this to other very significant sound makers like guns or um, and the relationship between bullets and the making of bells or the relationship of bells as a kind of weaponry um, historically. There are many temporalities here to explore ethnographically. From the point of view of sound recording, I only work with certain ones. And I've made recordings about carnival. I've made recordings about church bells. I've made recordings about shepherds and their animals. Um, and uh, I've uh, tried to uh, uh, really suggest the multiplicity of conversations about space and time um, that, that, are, that, are, that are so productive there in listening to those histories of listening. But, but I have no uh, specific ax to grind about one kind of time or one kind of, you know, a sort of more essential or other um, shepherd <laughs> understanding of time. Yeah. yeah, and bells become part of the production of histories of nostalgia about the village and the pastoral and everything else. Why does every politician all over southern Europe, you know, get their picture taken in front of the Campanile or in front of the bell, some kind of bell tower or something like that. I mean, there's a whole kind of way in which bell tower equals history equals. So, I mean, it's working in both the most pernicious and conservative dimensions of politics, but it's also part of the whole UNESCOization. I mean, there's that wonderful Italian book, which you probably know. Um, since you know everything about Italy too, that, uh, that, <laughs> that, that uh, you know, called the UNESCOization of the Campanile, which is about the whole way in which discourses of cultural heritage, like the kinds you've, you know, <laughs> made so present, uh, are, uh, you know, tend to find their way to these very nice kind of ob objects <laughs> that can be used to speak uh, in these multivalent ways to notions of what it means to preserve something. <laughs> and um, and, and uh, so, of course, you know, you, you get a lot of that there. But, uh, the, well, some of the other stuff, I'll, I'll send you some of the bell recordings, which kind of explore uh, other ways to theorize or listen in on what I think are the conversations that are taking place locally, or s some of the conversations taking place locally, both in northern and uh, Greece and in uh, in Skyros, where we've done the carnival work, um, and uh, and uh, uh, and in Crete. <laughs>